We'll be reading Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page 878. Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of just quick extra announcements. Uh, we do have new bookmarks that give you the, the highlights or the dates for the rest of the year. Will has those and someone else, they're gonna hand them out real quick. So if you, like, like let's just do one per family, for, per household for now. So if you wanna raise your hand as the, the member of your household, that way they know how many to pass down your row. Um, that would be great. Uh, take a look at the front side of that and the back side and it'll just keep you up to speed on things that are happening between now and the, uh, and the end of the year. Hopefully that's helpful for you in making plans uh, for the next semester or so. Also, I just want to put my plug in, too, for the men's retreat. Uh, listen, I haven't even signed up for it yet, all right? <laughs> I'm way behind. But I am going, and I really want to encourage you guys to come. It'll be a really sweet time of fellowship. Several of the pastors will be there. Uh, many of the, the deacons and church leaders will be there. Uh, please come, guys. Let's make this a really special, sweet weekend for us as we engage with the Lord together and hear what Kenny has to bring from the Word for us uh, next weekend. So again, the deadline for that is Tuesday. Sign up for it. Join me and the other guys that are going to be there, all right? All right, well, this is a super boring way to start a sermon, but I, I want to make a couple of quick caveats, okay? Uh, first, community group leaders, I need to make a personal apology to you. Um, later this past week, late in the week this past week, I changed the text that I'm preaching on. Um, so the discussion that you had, as fruitful as I'm sure it was, um, wasn't for naught. You can just sort of like, uh, we'll, we'll punt that into a, a later week in the month of October. But there was just a lot of overlap between the uh, kind of the big ideas between last week's text and what was going to be Luke 14 this week. And so instead of doing that, um, I, I chose a, a Luke 19 text for us today, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. But not to worry, your labor was not in vain. We will circle back to that text later. Um, yeah, but I'm sorry. Uh, also, I mentioned this 
last week, but almost always we work consecutively through the Bible, you know, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word for word. We don't usually preach on specific topics in the scriptures. Um, uh, I only say that to say that the application that we're going to draw from Luke 19 this morning today isn't the primary intent of the passage. I do uh, I do want you to know that we will cover that at some point, someday, the primary intent, but today we're coming to the text with a very specific question about Jesus' take on hospitality and how, on how hospitality and mission mix together. Today we're going to highlight a secondary application of the passage, not the primary. It is a correct application, I believe, but it's, it's not the primary one. I just wanted to put that caveat out there in case you were wondering, especially all you women who have trained under Colleen are going to be scratching your heads and being like, Josh, you missed it, bro. Look, I know I missed it, and I missed it on purpose to try to highlight a particular strategy that Jesus employed on the mission. So thanks for requiring me to give caveats, Colleen. I really appreciate that. Um, no, it's a good thing, uh, a good thing. If you are not in ladies' Bible study, I would highly recommend you jumping into that. Just an amazing thing uh, that Colony has been at for years and really investing in the culture of our Bible-hungry ladies here. And anyone who's been in those Bible studies can attest to that. Well, what is the best meal that you ever ate? The best meal. I'm going to let us finish sorting through that. That way we won't be distracted, and neither will I on the back. This is not her fault. We have all kinds of issues with our, with our soundboard back there. So I'll just keep going. Look, we're a family here. We can't get the sound right. Sometimes we can't get the screen right. It's, it's okay. What is, what is the best meal that you ever ate? And I'm curious, as you sort of rack your brain through, uh, thinking through the best meals that you've ever eaten, what, what is the criteria that sort of fuels that idea that it was the best meal that you ever ate? Was it that succulent filet that was so good? Was it where you ate? Was it what you ate? Was it where you ate with some kind of amazing view of the beach or an amazing view of a mountain spring? Or was it who you ate with, with lots of laughter and amazing company and stories? Or was it how famished you felt, maybe with fast food meeting your deepest need because you were just so hungry? However you answer that question, what is the best meal you ever ate, probably demonstrates how you view the purpose of food in your life. If it's the mouth-watering steak, food's purpose is to taste good. If it's the company that you shared over that meal, food's purpose is to draw us together. If it's how famished you felt, food's purpose is to meet a simple need. Well, what did the maker of food believe about the purpose of food? What did the maker of food, Jesus, believe about the purpose of the food that we eat. Of the roughly 25,000 meals that Jesus ate in his short life, are there any detectable patterns that we might be able to observe as we consider how we ought to eat? Not what we ought to eat, but how and with whom we ought to eat. Like in the next year, you're going to sit down to eat approximately 1,100 times. Beyond feeling hunger in those moments, is there anything else that's going to motivate you to slide up to that table, pull up a chair, and pick up a fork? I hope and pray for me, and I hope and pray for you, that we will take up this deeply delicious privilege seriously, because to Jesus, food matters. It does. He weaponized his meals for his messianic mission, and we should too. Thankfully, like we said last week, the dining rhythms of Jesus demystify our mission. The dining rhythms of Jesus demystify our mission as followers of Jesus. 
When we observe him closely, suddenly mission becomes less scary and way more tangible, way more accessible. It becomes more about a way of life uh, than a way of life that we enjoy in the ordinary rhythms of life. It's not something that you end up tacking onto your already busy life, but it's something that you include in the ordinary stuff of your life, like eating and drinking, like we have to do all day, every day. So a quick review of Jesus' rhythms finds hospitality at the center of all that he did. In fact, this helps to clarify our big idea from Luke 19 today. It's this. Big idea is like an encapsulation of, of the one portable truth that we could take home with us today. It's this. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners, and he calls us to do the same. Well, what was Jesus' mission? Luke tells us in our passage today. If you look down, look at Luke 19, verse 10. He says, For the Son of Man came for the purpose, for this mission, to seek and save the lost. That, for all intents and purposes, was Jesus' job, to save us from the penalty of our sin. But what were his tools for his job? Like a carpenter carries a hammer, a baker has his rolling pin, an attorney has her law books. All of these things help these people do their jobs. Well, what was one of the primary tools in Jesus' toolkit to accomplish his job? Food. Food. We learned this last week from Luke 7. Jesus came eating and drinking. Luke 7. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save. How did Jesus come? Eating and drinking. So, throughout Jesus' life, we find him capitalizing on the ordinary needs of hungry stomachs to meet the spiritual needs of hungry souls. As Jesus was wrapping up his earthly ministry, here's what he said to his disciples. He's, he's about to leave and go back to the Father, and he says this to his disciples, and he says it to all of us. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you in the same way. So what I want to know of you is, what I want to know of me is, could we substitute our name there for Jesus in that sentence that we just read? So like, instead of throughout Jesus' life, could we say throughout Josh's life, we find him capitalizing on the ordinary needs of hungry stomachs to meet the spiritual needs of hungry souls. Of your last 1,100 meals in the last year, have you invited anyone into your home or out to eat for the express purpose of caring for their soul and or introducing them to Jesus in the first place? If not, I think you may be missing out on a beautiful and, dare I say, delicious way of following Jesus and living out the mission that he's given to us. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners, and he calls us to do the same. So let's explore how he does this in Luke 19. Just for context, Jesus is about a week away from the cross. His time on earth is winding down. And so he's passing through the city of Jericho on his way to the city of Jerusalem where he will lay his life down. And as Jesus is walking through Jericho, word is spreading quickly. Jesus is like, you know, a celebrity superstar by now. And so the, the city finds out that Jesus is here. And Zacchaeus had heard legend of this man, and he just wanted to see what the, all the hype was about. Who was this Jesus? And so he locates the entourage that is traveling with Jesus to try and sneak a peek of this guy. So he, he runs ahead of the crowd to try to get a glimpse of him from the front. But the crowd is growing, and it wasn't just behind Jesus now. It was beside him 
and in front of him, encircling him. Zacchaeus had a problem. And Lord knows, I promised him that I would not make any jokes about short men, and so I'm not going to make any jokes about short men today. I'm going to keep rolling. But Zacchaeus can't see Jesus because he's too short. He was vertically challenged, and so he probably gets up on his tippy toes to see if he can see over the crowd. Nothing. Maybe he's like jumping up and down like that kind of number to see if he can see over the crowd, to see if he can see Jesus. Nothing. The crowd is getting closer and closer to him now. He's going to miss his opportunity, and so in desperation, he looks around for something to give him some help to see Jesus, and he finds a tree along the side of the road, and he climbs it. Ah, there Jesus was. He could finally see him coming his way. Zacchaeus was probably pretty unimpressed, to be honest. Isaiah 53 predicted this. It says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What was all the hype about? Zacchaeus must have been asking himself. But then something crazy happened. The crowd began to slow as Jesus began to slow his pace. And finally, he comes to this full stop under the shade of a sycamore tree. But he was not there for respite from the sun. He looked up, and he makes eye contact with Zacchaeus. Most everyone in Jericho looked down on Zacchaeus because of his stature and because of his job. They hated him. We'll get to that in a second. So this image of Jesus looking up at Zacchaeus, at this scoundrel with affection, is so moving to me, I think. It underscores the incredible humility of Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing and gladly associated himself with the likes of Zacchaeus. <laughs> with the likes of me. Like we said last week, I am not an embarrassment to Jesus. I'm identified by him and with him and numbered among his family by faith. I'm just so moved by the fact that Jesus is not embarrassed by me. He looks up and he speaks absolute, this absolutely mind-boggling thing. Jesus says, Zacchaeus! And it's at this moment where he must have been, Zacchaeus must have been, begun to really believe that there was something different about this guy. They'd never met, but Jesus knew his name. He must have thought, oh boy, if he knows my name, what else does he know about me? But it was what came out of Jesus' mouth next that really flabbergasted not just Zacchaeus, but the whole throng there that was gathered around this tree. Jesus said, Hurry down, man. I'm coming to your place today. This was astounding. No one did this. No one. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. It's probably not surprising to any of us, but tax collectors were absolutely hated in this day. This was a hated man, Zacchaeus. It was way worse than the way that you feel about the IRS when you see how much money they sneak out of your check every month. The only way these dudes made any money was to overtax people, overtax them what Rome was already taxing them. And they were constantly trying to widen their margins for personal profit. These were sleazy cheats, and everyone knew it. But because they were under Rome's thumb, they couldn't do anything about it. They had to obey what Zacchaeus demanded of them. Oh, how far Zacchaeus had fallen. The, the name Zacchaeus means pure or, or righteous. I imagine his parents had high, high hopes for who Zacchaeus would turn out to be. 
They probably raised him to live a virtuous life. But this was far from that. That's why this move was so controversial for Jesus. You don't invite yourself into the home of someone that you're reluctant to meet. But there was no reluctance on Jesus' part. The opposite, in fact, eagerness to hang with this guy. I think this is instructive for any of us in here who think that we have fallen too far beyond the grace of God, made too many choices that have led us too far away, that there's no hope for us to sort of make up the gap or the ground that we have lost. But you cannot fall too far to be beyond the grace of God. Let that soak into your soul this morning and find rest in it. Jesus isn't reluctant to meet you. He's eager. Well, to make matters worse and more complicated, Zacchaeus is Jewish, not Roman. So he's ripping off his own people to fund the vile, God-hating Roman government. Most Jews would have avoided these dudes like the plague, but not Jesus. Jesus walks right up to Zacchaeus, locks his eyes on him, and said, let's hang out. So Zacchaeus drops down from that sycamore branch, and they begin walking together. I've joked about this before. Is Arlene here today? No, Miss Arlene? We'll have to change this. Uh, I've joked about this before. It would be like walking up to Miss Ray after the gathering today and inviting her to lunch and saying, just get in your car and follow me, Miss Ray. So she gets in her car, I get in mine. And then we drive to her house, hopping out of the car and asking her, what's, what's for lunch, Miss Ray? Jesus is intruding on Zacchaeus's turf for the sake of the mission. Remember those two pillars that we talked about last week? Everyone needs food and everybody needs Jesus. Jesus understood this fully, which is why so often we see him mixing meals with mission, especially in the book of Luke. We said last week that Jesus is constantly either going to a meal, coming from a meal, or eating a meal in Luke. So the first thing that we see here today is that Jesus initiates missional intrusion, and so should we. Jesus initiates missional intrusion, and so should we. So in order for Jesus to end up at Zacchaeus' house later that day, he had to initiate a conversation. He could just as easily have passed by that tree without saying a thing. If we want and if we are willing to follow Jesus into mission, we need to employ the same sorts of tools that he did, eating and drinking together. It's going to require us to take some initiative. Listen, if you can recite lots of Bible verses, and if you read your Bible every day, and you pray faithfully, but still don't know your neighbor's names, you may have missed the point of those verses. Hard words for all of us to hear. For many of us in here, even getting to know our neighbor's names sounds pretty risky. I understand that completely. I think I've told some of you this before, but I, I too have this weird aversion to rejection. And it's surfaced in some embarrassing places. One is at yard sales. Not yard sales I go to, but yard sales that I have hosted historically. I remember very vividly hosting one maybe like 12 years ago. Uh, and not being able to handle the anxiety of people looking at my stuff, rejecting it, and walking away. Uh, it, was, it was really hard for me to handle. I mean, who wouldn't want my old college beanbag chair with a rip in the side, you know? Um, for some reason, they didn't. As people would glance at it and make the, 
you know, kind of, kind of face like, what is this guy trying to sell me? And they move on. It felt like an outright rejection of me. I, got, I kid you not about this. It got to be so much that I walked inside my house, closed the blinds, and then sort of like peeked through the blinds like this as people looked at my stuff, rejected it, and walked away. I have a hard time with rejection. But they weren't really turning their backs on me, were they? No, just my old beanbag chair that was ripped. And when you begin to offer the good news of King Jesus, if they reject it, they won't be rejecting you. They'll be rejecting Jesus. There's a buffer there. There's some safety there. So take courage in that. Still, I understand that falling, that feeling deep down when you feel rejected as a person is one of the worst feelings to have as a human being. Maybe you felt it on the kickball field as an elementary student, or maybe a coworker or a boss has rejected you or sidelined you. Maybe you feel marginalized in some way. Maybe your spouse doesn't really like who you are. Maybe all those things have so fed your aversion to rejection that you're not really willing to risk it on behalf of Jesus. Not willing to intrude onto someone else's comfort zone and leave your own comfort zone. C.S. Lewis said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Now listen, I'm not necessarily saying that you need to invite yourself over to your neighbor's house for dinner. But just in case, Ray, what is for lunch today? Do you know? Oh, are you serious? She's home right now making you lunch? Oh, man, that is too good. She's in trouble. I hope it's good. <laughs> Jesus gladly gave away home court advantage for the sake of Zacchaeus' soul. Before Brian and Cassie Phillips, many of you know them and love them, left to be missionaries in Spain, I invited them over, we invited them over one year to watch the Super Bowl with us. We were making plans for the menu and what time they're going to show up and everything. And then he texted me, and he told me that he wasn't going to be able to make it. Well, why, Brian? He had a neighbor who had invited him over. And so he prioritized the mission of, I guess what would be comfort, I don't know, of hanging with a friend to catch the game. He prioritized the mission over hanging with a friend. He, made him, he put himself in a more uncomfortable situation to prioritize the mission. This is instructive to me. I've thought about the decision that he made many times through the years. Are you willing to follow suit, to follow Brian in that, to get out of your comfort zone for the sake of a soul, like Jesus does here? So if you see a neighbor outside doing lawn work or on a walk or taking the dog out or whatever, you may need to whisper a prayer under your breath, God help. And then take courage and walk over there and initiate a conversation with them. All the while knowing that, yes, you want to get to know them as a person, but ultimately and truly you want to introduce them to the world's greatest person, Jesus. This requires us to put others' needs in front of our own, others', com others comforts before our own. And sometimes it may require you to put people's needs before yours for certain kinds of people that you don't think you should have to put their needs before yours. Listen, if Jesus had a different agenda, a more pious-looking and superficial agenda, he would not have given Zacchaeus the time of day. Zacchaeus was just the sort of person that it would make sense for Jesus to walk right past. A betrayer of his own people? 
a thief? Instead, he would give his life for him in a few short days. Another creative way to follow Jesus here that I have mentioned, uh, that I mentioned last year, is from our members Dan and Joan Lloyd. Uh, their neighborhood through the years has hosted what, what is called a pizza night. The folks on their block gather weekly for a meal. From what I hear, it's always at night, but it's not always pizza. Um, Christians come, non-Christians come. He said that they always start with a prayer and that spiritual conversations are common during this pizza night. I think this is a great way of following Jesus' example of eating and drinking with sinners and saints as a means for the mission. And the glory of that particular model of pizza night is that you get to follow Jesus' example in at least two ways. Sometimes you get to play the gracious host, like Jesus does, and sometimes you get to play the intrusive guest, like Jesus is doing right here in Luke 19 today. Everyone gets to do both because they rotate homes every week. This is just an idea for you. I think Bob and Heather LaRocca have modeled this kind of hospitality really well, too. Take them out to dinner and pick their brain about how they have done this through the years. I just got you some free dinner. You're welcome, LaRocca's. And also, uh, Dan and Amy Brown have done this really, really well through the years, too. So you owe them some dinner as well. They've got a, a bigger family, so good luck with that. Um, you might want to pick, I don't know, Chick-fil-A instead of Outback for that family. But anyway, they've done this and modeled this really well for me and my family. Um, and I would encourage you to allow them to model it for yours as well. Collectively, let us dream about what it might look like to follow Jesus into mission by engaging on the turf of our unbelieving friends and neighbors like Jesus does with Zacchaeus here. Community group leaders, perhaps you could even make this a part of your conversations in the coming week in your groups, discussing how we can create new rhythms, maybe in our groups, that look like Jesus' rhythms. Maybe once a month or every other month you take one of your meetings and you meet at a person's house for a uh, for community group and a meal, and that person can invite their neighbors in to a party, and you can enjoy that together. I don't know. There's probably a million different ways we could apply this. So here we find Jesus embracing a controversial host, pulling up a chair, and eating and drinking with Zacchaeus. This was intentional. Jesus understood very well that meals express inclusion. So Jesus' willingness to hang and eat with Zacchaeus expressed his own willingness to risk being lumped in with this sinful outsider. It was moves like this that eventually so threatened the religious zealots of Jesus' day that led him to his death. Just a few days later, Robert Kerr says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. I wonder if you have ever eaten with someone controversial for the purpose of giving them the gospel? It's a hard question, but this was Jesus' life. We too should eat like Jesus and watch him work through our own hospitality. Jesus and Zacchaeus had very little in common. One was rich, the other homeless. One was a cheat, the other the Christ. One was employed by Rome and the other crucified by Rome. There just wasn't any reason for these two people to be hanging together. None. But they did because Jesus humbly and graciously intruded onto Zacchaeus' turf to share the truth. There are specific people that I have in my mind right now that I have thought about in this way. I have looked down my nose at them. 
I have thought of them as hopelessly lost, probably not unlike the way that Zacchaeus would thought of. Especially by the Pharisees, he was thought of as hopeless. I've thought of them, these people though, in my, my mind's eye as, as sinners and not souls who need the hope of the gospel. I've repented of this. I'm asking God for grace to intrude on their turf for the sake of their souls. Maybe you've heard this quote from C.S. Lewis, but it would do us well to review it again. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, if not under grace, or everlasting splendors, if redeemed by grace. Your neighbors, your political opponents, the IRS, the president you love, the president you hate, they aren't ordinary people. They're not mere mortals. They're either immortal horrors under the wrath of God or everlasting splendors rescued by the grace of God. Now, those are kind of like distant and potential and comfortable recipients of God's grace, right? Like the likelihood that you're going to cross paths with Joe Biden or Donald Trump are slim. But you will cross the paths of your neighbors. They're not mere mortals. They are either immortal horrors under the wrath of God or everlasting splendors under the grace of God. Still, I wonder if you, like me, are still feeling a little uncomfortable about adopting habits of bringing strangers or maybe neighbors into our home or going into theirs and crossing that gospel threshold like we talked about last week. That can be super intimidating. I agree. But I think we can employ some specific strategies to reduce that discomfort. Here's one. By remembering God's stunning love for you in Christ, as you remember that and recall that and meditate on that, you need never fear rejection. You are accepted by God whether they accept you and your message or not. Whether they reject you or not, you're still accepted on account of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, you are accepted despite a lifetime of shortcomings. You may feel useless like a ripped up beanbag chair. You may feel sidelined, but God wants you. And not because of you, but because of his son Jesus who gave himself for you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, accepted by God. There is so much safety there that it makes rejection from a coworker seem like a blip on the radar. Here's another idea. This text and others like it all throughout the Gospels imply something that I think may relieve some of the angst that we feel about engaging in this kind of mission, eating and drinking. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples all along the way, right? We know this about him. So the assumption here Uh, is that they are likely still with him even as he heads into uh, Zacchaeus' house. We saw this when he he went into uh, Levi's house last year. We saw that he brought his disciples with him. It's a safe assumption that he did this routinely throughout his ministry. And I think following his example about who he brings with him into mission can help diffuse some of our fears. Now, I'm sure one of the reasons Jesus brought his disciples along with him was to model for them how they were supposed to live out the mission once he was gone. Live out the mission, eating and drinking with sinners and saints. But it doesn't take too much creativity to think about some other benefits of bringing other believers into these 
intrusions for Jesus' sake. Specifically, bringing other believers in will help us with the preparation and the conversation. Preparation and conversation. Those are the two most daunting things, probably, right? When you think about intruding onto other people's turf or having them come into your turf to, to share a meal together, you're nervous about preparing for them, getting your house ready and getting the food ready. And then you're like, what are we going to talk about? How do we cross the bridge from weather into something that is actually meaningful for eternity? The good news is that we get to share in this mission together. So I think we ought to follow Jesus' lead here in bringing his disciples into these rhythms. Invite our Christian friends to the table with our non-Christian friends. We don't have to ride solo in this. Ask someone from your community group to join you as you engage with your neighbors for the sake of their souls. Or why not invite them to one of our feasts, like tonight? That's an easy out. See how their observation of our community might stir up curiosity in their hearts about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. You're not in charge of the fruit that comes from this. God is good and sovereign and all of that, but he has called us to plant seeds. So like Jesus, bring other Jesus disciples around the same table to meet your neighbors. And just pray and be faithful and see what God will do. This is our calling, church. It's Jesus' high calling for us, our great commission to make and mobilize faithful disciples of Jesus. This is how there can be hundreds more voices in here every week, lifting high the name of the Redeemer, raising the roof with thunderous praise and applause for our great God. That's a beautiful, like, hopeful picture. And it happens by us eating and drinking with sinners and saints. So ordinary. Well, Jesus initiated missional intrusion, and so should we. But I want us to look at one last thing here today. Zacchaeus demonstrates true conversion and so should we. One interesting thing about Luke's play, placement of the Zacchaeus story here is the story that it follows in Luke 18. In chapter 18, he tells this story about a rich, young ruler who would not leave his riches behind to follow Jesus. And so in 18, we have a rich ruler. In 19, we have a rich Zacchaeus. They're placed back to back, I think, on purpose to contrast the different responses of these men, especially with regard to money. The rich ruler leaves Jesus sad because he loves his possessions too much to leave them to follow Jesus. Look at Luke 18, 24 and 25 on screen. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But contrast that with Zacchaeus' response in our text today. Look at verse 6 of 19. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So you've got the rich ruler who can't submit his wealth to Jesus going away sad. And you've got rich Zacchaeus who clearly submits his wealth to Jesus. You see that later in the text, being described as joyful. So what is the difference? How does one go away sad and how is one joyful? Well, one received Jesus and the other rejected him. One held on to his riches while the other was more than generous. Granted, the ruler probably remained wealthier financially than Zacchaeus, but submitting to Jesus' rule will always overwhelm sadness with joy, even if we're monetarily poorer for it. There's no doubt about it. Zacchaeus loved money. He was willing to cheat for it, steal it, 
and to sacrifice social acceptance with his people, his fellow Jews for it, he was willing to be hated in order to be rich. But of these two rich men that Jesus met, only one makes it through the eye of the needle. The other doesn't. So I, I do want to confess that like the toxic allure of the good life wasn't just a temptation for that rich ruler or for Zacchaeus. I think the good life is seductive to all of us. The safety and comfort of suburban living is a powerful drug. I feel it's tug almost daily. Enjoy the life that God gives to you, please, but don't let it tilt you off mission. Jesus lacked most of the things that we think are central to the good life. He didn't have them. Romantic love, sex, children, private property, wealth, a fruitful career. He didn't have any of those things, and yet he was the most joyful person ever. Zacchaeus also shows us here that money isn't necessary for joy. Man, whatever happened to Zacchaeus around that meal in his house was miraculous and transformative. Now, don't get squishy on me here, please. Clearly, Jesus challenged Zacchaeus' sin. He called for repentance and transformed behavior. And the Spirit did a work in Zacchaeus, a massive work. His response was nothing short of a miracle. Zacchaeus was not trying to earn Jesus' favor or salvation with his response. He wasn't trying to buy his way into the kingdom by saying he was going to repay all of these people twice what he owed them or four times what he owed them. He, was, he wasn't trying to buy his way into salvation. He was responding to Jesus' salvation. Around that table, Zacchaeus heard what he had done and who he was was not okay. Then he heard, it's okay to not be okay. But then he heard, it's not okay to stay there. Then he heard, repent and be redeemed and find life in me, Zacchaeus. I know I said the same exact thing last week, but it bears repeating here, I think. And I want this equation to sort of filter down into the DNA of our church. It's this, gospel plus safety plus time. Ray Ortland expands on this idea. This is what everyone needs. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, plus a lot of time. Gospel, good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Gospel, plus safety, a non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No cornering anyone, no shaming, but respect and sympathy, listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Gospel plus safety plus time. No pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but no hurry because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. So how might God use you and me to express the gospel around the safety of a table, in the context of a relationship with plenty of time, to lead an unlikely convert into the kingdom 
that neighbor, that family member, that coworker. Simon Holt says, it is good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of the Christian life so important to the mission of the church. At base, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. This kind of thinking right here violates our gods of comfort and ease, doesn't it? Like in Jesus' model, mission wasn't something that you clock in and out of. So I wonder sometimes if we are so busy doing church that we've forgotten to be the church. If we're not careful, we might be more Pharisee than we realize. We can get so good at this church thing that we even end up fooling ourselves. Remember, those Pharisees were scandalized at Jesus' willingness to hang with Zacchaeus, and they'd missed the whole point. And I think, like the Pharisees, we can get so good at this book, like professional at it. We can quote, quote it. We can go to Bible studies. We can come faithfully to Sunday gatherings. We're pretty good about community group. But I think one of the greatest dangers is to become consumers of truth instead of being changed by the truth. Are you a consumer like the Pharisees were here in Luke 19? Do you see Jesus call on your life to engage in mission and sort of just shrug it off as the uncomfortable work that somebody else needs to do? Preferring the safety of a religious life, but not a missional one. Uh, a number of years ago, I kind of got into a weird rut of watching a show, a TV show, that was consumed with eating habits. Uh, it was called My 600-Pound Life, and it was a documentary about men and women whose weight had climbed to over 600 pounds. Sometimes it had even climbed higher to like 1,000 pounds. And the show was about getting them the help that they need. And many times, thankfully, the doctors were successful in helping them. But as their weight climbed higher and higher, their mobility disintegrated. They couldn't do anything for themselves anymore, even eat some of them. Some of them had to be uh, spoon-fed or, or tube-fed their food, their nutrients for the day. And you've got to wonder, or I have to wonder, if that's kind of like the church today. We come to eat Sunday after Sunday. We say, feed me, feed me, feed me. I want bread. I want good bread. And we should say that, and we should want that. But can we even get up and exercise anymore? Can we act on what we eat? The folks in that show couldn't. God save us from becoming thousand-pound Christians who are so, so well-fed but can't or won't do anything. How thrilled would Satan be for a bunch of us to just show up and eat every Sunday, enjoy the meal, and then walk away unchanged? He'd love that. Let's not do what our enemy would love. He wants us to be eating without acting. He wants us to be hearing without doing. He wants us to be good at proclamation, but indifferent to demonstration. Zacchaeus didn't just proclaim he was a Christian. He demonstrated it. Church, we must not be content with gospel proclamation, but indifferent to gospel demonstration. Of course, 
It's a blessing to hear the word of God preached and prayed and sung. It's a blessing to read it. But church, the real blessing is when we do it. James 1, but the one who looks into the perfect law, this, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There are just too many broken hearts and too many shattered lives that have been broken up by sin and death. Please, can we together show them the initiating love of their Savior? As we close here, I want to make another confession to you. To my, to my shame, many times I have thought of my relationship with neighbors or uh, in previous employment with coworkers in the past. I've thought of my relationship with them like a bridge. We want to build bridges with people, right? We hear that kind of terminology a lot. We want to develop a relationship with them before we ever deliver the gospel to them. That makes sense, relationally. I think this is a good plan and it's a good model, but I confess to you this morning that more often than not, I spend so much of my time developing elaborate bridges with exquisite detail. Beautiful bridges, stable bridges, intricate bridges that never get used. I can build lots of relational capital. I'm good at that. And then forget or shy away for why I built the bridge in the first place, to drive the gospel truck across it, to tell people about the one person who can secure their identity apart from how they look or how much they make or who they're accepted by. We can build bridges that we never drive across. But we don't find Jesus doing that here. He's doing both at the same time. He's doing this, building bridges, and driving the gospel truck across around the table with a hated man. Look, church, food matters. Jesus accomplished his mission through eating and drinking with sinners and saints, and that's how we will too. Maybe your best meal ever is still in your future. By God's grace, that's the case for all of us. Not because of a melt-in-your-mouth steak, but because Jesus shows up and rescues a soul around your table. May God make it so. Will you take a couple minutes now and pray towards that end? Mel is going to come up and pray for us as well, too. Pray in your own heart as he prays. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this word. Um, Jesus said he don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of your mouth. And yet, when he was done that time, the angels fed him and gave him nourishment. And in this time, we saw, as Josh told us today, uh, Jesus ate, but he ate with a purpose. Help us to Put purpose to our meals, whether it's with our family, with uh, believers like this evening, or, or our neighbors and non-believers. Help us to, to not live by the bread alone, but to use the bread that you do give us and provide us. Lord, it, it touches me that you called Zacchaeus by name. Help us to know the name of the people that we're ministering to, but uh, most important, just know that we are known by you and to pass that on. So, Lord, help us to uh, use what you give us, our provision, our food, our hospitality. Help us to be hospitable and to uh, 
make you more known in this world. Pray this in your name. Amen.